This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Welcome. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. To the coaches. Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Clubhouse. I don't think we have an avenue to say anything anytime. So you're talking to the wrong guy there. I think we're like the mushrooms. Just keep them in the dark and throw the crap on them and hope it grows. Now here's your coach's clubhouse host, Nicole Auerbach. Everyone, this is Nicole Auerbach, and welcome again inside the Coaches Clubhouse, the podcast where we delve deep into what drives coaches on and off the sidelines. This week, we're talking to Hall of Fame Stanford basketball coach Tara Vanderveer. She grew up in the 1960s as the best basketball player at her school, but had no real chance of making a life in women athletics until Title IX changed everything. She'd played basketball at Indiana and observed Bobby Knight practices before launching into one of the greatest basketball coaching careers in history, first at Idaho, then at Ohio State, and she finally landed at Stanford in 1985. Four times she's been named the National Coach of the Year, and she's won two national championships. If that wasn't enough, she was also the head coach of the 1996 Olympic women's basketball team, winning gold in Atlanta with a team that propelled women's basketball into the national consciousness and paved the way for the WNBA. During all of this, she has somehow been able to develop another passion, the piano. After growing up playing instruments her whole life, she decided to dive into the piano. And like everything else she's dedicated herself to throughout her life, she's found success. Here is my conversation with Tara Vanderveer. I wanted to hear or start with your childhood. And it's so interesting thinking back about even my childhood as a female athlete versus your childhood as a female athlete and what was available from like a team sport perspective and the amount of sports you could sign up for and organize competition. And, you know, I had summer leagues, travel leagues and everything. Right. And so I'm wondering as, as someone who was falling in love with sports and, and playing basketball and and really everything outdoors, what that was like for you and what were those opportunities? Well, you know, as a young girl, um, both of my parents were really active. My my dad played college hockey and my mom was, you know, just really active. And so I'm the oldest of five children. And a Friday night, uh, uh, my parents would take our family and friends to the Y where we could jump on the trampoline, shoot hoop and, you know, go swimming. And that was the ultimate. And I, where I, where I grew up, you just went outside and played all day long. And we had a bell that our family would ring and you knew that your own sound of the bell that, that would bring you home. But in the meantime, you were, you know, climbing trees, playing baseball, playing tennis, doing everything you can imagine, biking, everything. So, you know, I grew up as a very active young child. And then I think about in the third or fourth grade in, in a gym class, we did um, three player weave basketball. And I'm like, wow, basketball was, I just loved it. But I, I did everything else, um, you know, played all kinds of sports, but not organized. Um, and the boys had organized, you know, seventh grade team, eighth grade team, freshman team, and there was nothing for girls. And it was honestly, it was really, really hard, really frustrating. Um, you know, I would, uh, and I remember in the ninth grade, I'd, you know, go play, just pick up, you know, just at the, at the hoop in in my neighborhood. And by that time, girls weren't playing and, you know, the boys would say, you know, we don't want you to play, but I would bring the best ball. So if they wanted to use my ball, they, I had to play. And, also in the ninth grade, uh, the gym teacher for the boys, who was also the boys' basketball coach, wrote in my 
ninth grade yearbook to the best basketball player in the ninth grade, boy or girl. But I didn't get to play on any team. And honestly, it was very, very frustrating. So my parents moved when I was in the 10th grade, which is really kind of hard for me. You know, you're you're right in the middle of high school and it was right in the middle of the year. And I just decided, you know, I, I've got to, I got to try some other things. So, because loving sports was not, was not really healthy in my mind. I just love to play things, but I, I had to get away from basketball for a while. Then, then we had a college team and my college, I, I believe my junior year, you know, I ended up going to state university of New York at Albany for one year. Then I transferred to Indiana for three years. And I think my sophomore year, we went to the national tournament. And that was the most thrilling thing I ever got to do. My junior year in the, like game number three, I sprained my ankle. So I missed half the season. You know, missed three more games and you're done. I, I didn't get a chance to play as much, but I watched a lot of basketball. Through college, I went to like Bobby Knight's practice at Indiana every day. And so some of my, I think some of my lack of playing, I was, I had a chance to watch a lot. So I studied basketball, honestly, since I was about in the fifth grade. When does it become something that you can play in college and that you are able to do the thing that you love? You know, I always like did other sports, like I would go skiing, which was fine for girls to do, you know, and actually my next door neighbor was a really good ski racer, but my parents were not going to take me to like the mountain to train like, you know, like her parents did, but I did sports, but I didn't get a chance to do competitive sports. And I really missed that. So college was the first time that we really had a team where you got a uniform and, you know, you traveled like we, we played like little play days when I was in high school and, you know, on a Saturday, like all these different teams would come and you play all these little games, but it wasn't anything like it is now. And the funny thing is like with our basketball camp for girls, it, at one point at Stanford, we had uh, close to 1800 young girls come to basketball camp. So for just the, just the youngest group, like it would be the fifth graders, I would have maybe a hundred 10 year olds in a room. And, uh, you know, I was, I was telling them about the fact I didn't play. I didn't go to basketball camp. There was not uh, girls basketball. There was not women's basketball on television. There was no pro league, you know, yada, yada, yada. You know, I was way up, way up on in my soapbox. And then towards the end, when this little girl raises her hand, she goes, coach, um, well, why don't they have it? Why didn't they have this for girls? And I, like, I didn't, I froze. I didn't even know how to answer it. So I, you know, I said like, I said, well, can anyone else answer this question? And another little hand goes up real quick. And this little girl, 10 years old, stands up and goes, sexism. I mean, it was like, that was, you know, how, how do you, you know, explain that? So basically these 10-year-olds these are like who I want to be when I grow up. The good thing now is that young girls and young boys and parents expect sports for girls. Well, yeah, of course we have it, you know, but... um you know, it hasn't always been that way. And, you know, I, I just remember also, you know, when I had a chance to uh, coach the Olympic team, you know, sometimes don't you wonder, like right before the big event, uh, like an Olympian, what do they think about? And I purposely, like I was in a room, it was, uh, I, I, it was just a quiet room. I was by myself. And I just thought this was right before the gold medal game. And I just thought, you know, you thought, you planned this out in your mind when you were 12 years old, like when I would be out playing basketball by myself, 
you know, the boys maybe weren't playing or they had their own teams or whatever. I'm shooting and, you know, I beat the free throw line. I would imagine playing in front of a big crowd. And I, before the gold medal game, I just thought back to being a little kid and how much I loved the game and how, you know, just you're, you're kind of like thinking, you know, you got to win this game. But I, I was just totally relaxed. I was just like, I love the game of basketball. I've been imagining this since I was, you know, 10 years old. And now look at your dreams have come true. And it was, you know, it was just it's really exciting. Since you brought up the Olympic team, one thing that's so interesting to me, I've, I've covered two Olympics at USA Today. I covered the London and Rio Olympics and I covered swimming. So obviously it's a more individual sport. It, it was really fascinating to talk to people about the pride of representing their country and kind of what it means to be in that Olympic bubble where, you know, the entire world is watching for a couple of weeks. What was that like to be part of for you? You know, it's kind of funny, actually. You know, I was at the Atlanta Olympics and um, it was weird because I, I was really worried that I wouldn't be able to sleep. I was, you know, I, you're so wired. And I don't know if you remember at the Atlanta Olympics, it's when we had the bombing. So I got up the next morning and uh, Carol Callen, the director of uh, USA Women's Basketball, we, we were going running at six o'clock in the morning. And she goes, Tara, do you know what happened last night? And I was the only one that slept through the whole incident. And everyone else had been out in the hall and, you know, but I, I just, uh, I was just, I guess, you know, I was ready for um, the Olympics in my own way. I, you know, I was getting my sleep. I was ready for it. But um, there was a funny thing where I had this suite and my mother was visiting me and we were watching the gymnastics that was on television or swimming was on television. And, you know, and I, I made this comment to my mom, like, wouldn't it be fun to be at the Olympics? And my mother's like, you, you are at the Olympics. But I didn't see it that way because I was working, you know. And it just felt like a, a basketball tournament. It didn't feel like the Olympics. Although the, the opening ceremonies were really fun. I have to say that. And everything about the Olympics was really a blast. So, you know, I really enjoyed it. Did you get to go to any other events or not? I did not, no. Uh, I just, you know, we played every other day. And, you know, I just, there was no, I just had to focus and stay really kind of true to myself. And that's how I work, work best. I just knew that, you know, we, we had to win that gold medal. So I had, I needed everything I could to focus on that. Outside of the outside issues with that Olympics, like that was a very pivotal Olympics for me as a female athlete, there was just so much to watch and consume and it was awesome. Um, so going back to the beginning of your coaching career, you, you mentioned how, when you were playing at Indiana, you would pay attention to and go to Bob Knight's practices. I'm curious, you know, the decision to make that your career and then what the entry point looked like at that point, because I'm sure it's very, very different than if, you know, you graduate college now and want to get into coaching women's basketball. Well, I majored in sociology. I had, I had no plan to go into coaching because that wasn't a J-O-B job. There was my coach at Indiana was a graduate student, you know, and like a lot of times when you're done with college, um, you know, you're just thinking, well, I just want a break, you know, so uh, I just took a break. I went to Florida. I, I sailed competitively with two, uh, some brothers and we sailed and then, you know, kind of ran out of money. And at Christmas, I came home to New York where my parents lived. And, you know, in the middle of January, my dad's like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. And he goes, well, you're going to go help coach your sister's team. And my sister was not really into basketball at all, but they had just put in basketball because of Title IX. And I'm like, Dad, no, I'm not into that. And he said, well, you're going to go coach that team. They had lost the night before 99 to 11. So wow, that that was my start. Right. But my dad was like, hey, if you're going to live here, you're going to eat our food, you're going to go help. So 
I really had fun. I really enjoyed it. And it was a great, great experience. And I, you know, I'd come home and my parents would be like, well, how come you didn't play Marie more? That's my sister. And I'm like, wow, she, she can't shoot. She can't play defense. But um, so then I was able to get a kind of an internship. Basically, I volunteered at Ohio State and I had my own JV team. And so that was my start. And then they were looking for coaches because all these colleges now had just started you know, with Title IX, they had to had to field teams. So I got a head job at Idaho, and I loved it. I coached there for two years, then I came back to Ohio State for five years, and then I came to Stanford. So I know at the time when you made that move to Stanford, people wondered why. If you had things rolling at Ohio State and, and Stanford is coming off a rough stretch. Walk me through making that decision then and then looking back at it now, like the things that people were knocking Stanford for, you know, becoming some of the strengths of that program. We did have it rolling. We had tremendous, tremendous players. And we had just played in a game at Iowa where we had 22,000 people. And then we went back and we had over 100,000, I mean, uh, 10,000 people at Ohio State. But it was a weird thing. Um, There were just things that happened that I just didn't understand. And I just said, I need to be, I need to look. I didn't really think about going anyplace, but I need to look. So I just wanted to see, well, what are they doing at other places? And, and I realized I'm at Ohio State. You know, I'm at a great public university. So if I make a change, I wanted to go to something different. And both of my parents are in education. Uh, my dad was an administrator. My mom uh, also taught. And I just felt for women especially, not that it's not important for men, but there were no professional opportunities at the time. I just said education the combination of the Stanford education, the beautiful weather in Palo Alto, to be, you know, Pac-12, Pac-10, Pac-12 league, what could be better than this? And I also was recruited by Andy Geiger, who was the athletic director. I just felt like he really wanted me to be there. And I learned a lot about recruiting from him. So I went and it was hard because the team was down. They had been five and 23 and, you know, nine and 18 the year before. And we had a lot of recruiting to do. So, you know, we got right at it. And the first recruit we signed was Katie Stedding. She was on the 96 Olympic team. And also in that recruiting class was Jennifer Azy. So both uh, Jennifer Azy and Katie Stedding and then Sonia Henning, you know, Tricia Stevens, Val Whiting, they put Stanford basketball on the map. When you stay somewhere so long, which obviously is rare in anything, in any profession these days, how do you make sure that you're continuing to grow as a coach? I mean, I think you, you have to grow to, to just stay current with the, the current student athletes, all the different things that are happening, especially look at what's happening now. I think also there's a, a certain amount of, you know, people are looking for stability too. Uh, when they come to Stanford, you know what you're going to get. And for some people, that's, you know, that's good. For other people, you know, it's like maybe Stanford education is not what they want or type of program that we run. So Stanford isn't for everyone, but for the people that fit the profile academically and really buy into the philosophy, the kind of the Stanford way of team basketball, it's a great fit. And I I think for me, one of the things that, that I do, you know, I have a lot of other interests outside of basketball that in fact, I think keep me fresh about basketball. If I just did basketball all the time, I, I don't know, I think it would just wear you out. And I've never been a one-dimensional person. I feel like kind of um, variety is a spice of life and I have a lot of other interests. 
So that's a great transition into one of those interests that we want to talk to you about, which is piano. But I know that that wasn't the first instrument that you ever played. I was reading up that you had played the flute as a child, which also I did basically because I thought that the case was cute to carry around. So I played the flute for two years and then realized I didn't actually like it that much. But did music have a place in your childhood as you were growing up? Like when did the piano in particular come into your life? Well, I I love music and I, my summers have always been, for the most part, since I was a really little girl, I've been at Chautauqua, New York. And I don't know if you're familiar with Chautauqua, but it's, um, it's a cultural resort, basically. And music is a big part of it. So as a young, as a young girl, actually, I was in operas, I was in three operas when I was, um, you know, really young. And, uh, you know, I had a great part. And I mean, uh, Carmen was my favorite one, but I was in some other ones, too. Also, um, you know, I would go to symphonies. I mean, I've listened in person to people like um, Van Cliburn. Just you, you can think of the, the top musicians that I've been, you know, that I've been exposed to. So I think my parents really exposed me to uh, music and uh, mostly classical music when I was a young, young girl. So I started taking the flute. I love the flute. And at Chautauqua, I took flute lessons from one of the top professors. He was a professor at Indiana University, Professor Pellerite, who was the top flute player in the country. And I was his youngest student and um, it was very demanding. I loved it. But during the year when I went home, my, uh, I really had trouble with my flute teacher. I got physically ill going to my lessons and I didn't practice enough. And I just took my flute and I just set it down and I just, you know, told my parents I'm not playing anymore. Um, And I really realized just for me, the importance of a teacher and I was fortunate when I started playing the piano. That was just something I decided I wanted to do. I had this kind of romantic idea that it would be fun to sit down and play the piano. And it's a lot harder than it looks. I was able to get, like, the, honestly, the best piano teacher ever. I, what I realized, I made, like, three CDs. And other people that had taken lessons were shocked at how good I got, not because of me, but my teacher. And I just, you know, I realized that a great coach, a great teacher can take people places they can't go by themselves. And I've tried to, you know, incorporate that into my coaching. So deciding to pick up the piano and, and maybe teach yourself, but then hire a teacher. Was that when you were at Stanford already? Like, were you already well into your coaching career when you took it up? Yes, it was after the Olympics. I think, you know, gearing up to the Olympics was really demanding because it's not just like you coach the Olympic team, you coach a lot of build-up teams all summer long. But um, I have found that like whether it's piano or, you know, I like to, you know, I rode a, had a bike ride today or, you know, I'll go water skiing later on today or go sailing. All these other interests just help me be excited about basketball. I think it's interesting too, when you're talking about the importance of a teacher, because I, I played piano as a child, but it was more of a chore and I didn't like my instructor. And I also dreaded going to lessons. And also like, I, I think that some people can pick music up in ways that I can't, but it's funny to think back about what you learn, even when the instructor or the teacher isn't the right type of person to connect with you, what you learn about yourself. And I'm sure it was strange for you to be a student at that point as well, after being a coach for so long. You're, you hit that one right on the nail on the head. I had, you know, had lessons and then I was going to do a little recital and it was just for my friends, like assistant coaches and my sister and people like that. And my piano teacher, her name is Jody. We we're going to do duets. So it was going to be nice and easy. And um, she turned to me and she, you know, she kind of whispers, but she turned in a way that everyone was sitting over there um, and said, you know, posture. She's correcting me in front of, and they cracked up laughing, you know, because I'm like, oh, right away I sit up straight, you know, so I can play. And um, 
in some ways, maybe I forgot just where, where a coach or where a teacher fits in. Like I would have players that I'd coached 20 years ago say to me, Tara, do you remember when you said this? I'm like, of course not. You know what I mean? How could I remember, you know, but they had not forgotten, you know? And so I, I think that you're exactly right. Being a student again, really helped, I think, me put myself in my player's shoes in a better way because I would practice, 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 and I get a recital and I would bomb. And I honestly, I'd be so upset. And I, you know, and it would be like maybe players that, you know, just miss free throws in games. Or, and I, I think I'd be, I think it really changed me in a good way. It helped me. So how often do you play now? I don't know. As I got older, I just said, wow, I'm going to put that time in being more active. And that maybe the piano will be there for me when I can't be as active. But now I, I don't play. Um, I don't, I don't really play that much. I listen to my CDs and I'm doing more active things, whether it's biking. I walk, I have three dogs. I walk my dogs. I'm sailing I'm water skiing. I'm doing more of that. And during this, uh, coronavirus thing, one of the things I tried to do is I was really worried about my mom who's 93 and I just thought, we, I got to do something, you know, to keep her spirits up. So every day at four o'clock, we play bridge. And so we, you know, do online bridge. And I don't know if you play bridge or not, but it's very much like basketball. I mean, it's really, really competitive. And so my sisters and I with my mom, uh, that, so that's taken up my piano time. <laughs> that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good uh, substitute, I think. It's really fun. I, I love the bid and love to play. So it's fun. What, what kinds of music or what composers do you like to play the most? Um, I like classical music the most. I have a lot of duets on there, uh, Diabelli duets. Um, I have, um, there, are some, there are some new age uh, pieces that I like, but I would say mostly, you know, Mozart and Brahms and that just regular classical music. And some of them might be watered down pieces, you know, because I was doing a CD the first year I played and then like the third year and then like the fifth year. So, you know, they're, they're not like the flat out, you know, concertos or, you know, but they're really, they're beautiful. I have to say. That's awesome. And it's cool that you can listen back and see how you've grown in that skill as well. It's fun to listen to it. It's, it's a lot of, it was a, a lot of time and a lot of work, but um, I, I don't regret it. I, I love playing and, you know, I, I feel like it, it might be something I'll go back to, but um, right now I just feel like I've, I've got a lot on my plate. That was our interview with Tara Vandeveer. Check out all of our episodes on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and I'll talk to you next time inside the Coaches Clubhouse.